or should we kick this one off? Man, a dramatic way to start this episode. Uh, and yeah, just something to hear in my ears when I'm... I should be in bed still, Barry. I only got six hours of sleep last <laughs> night. My voice is a little bit croaky, so apologies for that. Uh, but it's Sunday morning and we are back to record Across the Pond. It's good to be here, Chad. And I, I can see you had a, had a rough weekend, so we're going to get nice and easy into this podcast. <laughs> we're going to get into some really cool topics and hopefully by the end of this, you'll be up and ready for the week ahead. Uh, but for all of you listening and watching, it's good to have you back. Uh, we really enjoyed some goat stuff last week, some Trump stuff last week, <laughs> and uh, we're going to take it very very easy today on a nice f- episode 48 of Across the Pond. So like I said, very to be honest, I was out last night and the night before and there's this curfew, this 10pm curfew that is just the bane of everyone <laughs> living in London at the moment. It honestly, I don't know one person who's happy that it's there. Um, but I mean, obviously, it's, you know, it's got a reason for, for being, uh, but it does make things really inconvenient when you do want to, I don't know, just have a night out. Selfishly, I'm a little bit happy that we aren't the only ones suffering with that curfew. <laughs> it's nice for someone else to feel that pain. I remember when we were at 10 p.m., it was the same thing. Just as you're getting into your evening, just as you're getting into your yep, dinner exactly. or your drinks or whatever it is, then everyone's looking at their watches, people start packing up and you got to head home. It's like <laughs> such a weird, weird thing. Um, and so I, I have some sympathy, but at the same time, we went through it and now we're through it. So I'm a little bit happy as well. <laughs> oh, I understand completely, Barry. Just not ideal at all. <laughs> Anyway, it is what it is, and uh, to be honest, at least we have that privilege, right? Exactly. But anyway, let's dig right in to the week that was. The week that was. So it's the very first time, I think, Barry, that we've actually stuck to our one topic per segment uh, kind of threshold that we like to set for ourselves so that we don't end up uh, just jumping from one thing off to the next uh, without much real structure, I guess. But but one topic, I mean, obviously loads more happened this week. Uh, but one thing that we decided we wanted to talk about, right? Yeah, James Bond, chat. James Bond, the brand new James Bond film that has been now been pushed to next year, which is oh. quite sad, I think. <laughs> I think we all wanted a bit of James Bond in our life. It's been, a, it's been a while since we've seen 007 in the wild. And the brand new film, I think it's called No Time to Die, has been postponed to next year. Yeah. And it brings up that same discussion we've had a couple times, Chad, about what do cinemas do in today's world where lockdown restrictions are still in place around the world and it's hard to get people into those cinemas to go and see these films. Do they go straight to Netflix? Do they go straight to online streaming? Do they cancel it completely? Do they postpone it? Lots and lots of drama and all of those different options. And obviously the James Bond franchise is a huge, huge deal. So for them to push to next year is going to set a precedent for some other films, I would think. Yeah, absolutely. And this has just been... I don't know, it's just been a terrible, terrible experience, I suppose, for any of those Bond fans who have had their hopes up for this release. There's a date, it's coming out. If you're living in London, there's posters everywhere. We had uh, Billie Eilish and Phineas come out, actually, uh, to promo this movie. And then it gets pushed back to late in the year, and then we get late in the year, and it gets pushed back again <laughs> to April 2021. Um, it really, really has been just a roller coaster and... Just not pleasant for anyone. I mean, we have seen some movies be released in this period. All of my friends are talking about Tenet, which I need to go and see, the latest Christopher Nolan. Um, And yeah, I mean, it's just one of those. It's really, really not, uh, not pleasant. 
Yeah, definitely not. And I think that for a long time, James Bond has been very, very on point. Like every single yep. scheduled release, they managed to do it. They're one of those few franchises that are still going after tons and tons and tons of reboots, mm. right? They're one of those like evergreen franchises. You never think there's going to go away. Yep. And unfortunately, the pandemic has had its way and is going to push it even further. And hopefully 2021 is the last of it, Chad. Exactly. Well, some sad news coming out of that release. And I suppose it's not directly related to James Bond, but it certainly uh, doesn't help. And that is the cinema chain in the UK called Sinwold. Uh, so we do have a few major chains here. We've got Odeon, we've got View, we've got Sinwold. And Sinwold are now closing, uh, as far as I understand, pretty much all of their cinemas um, kind of around the UK, US as well. Because they were kind of counting on this release to get some foot traffic in the door. And I guess it's a question of working capital when it comes to these big corporations who are paying massive amounts of rent because cinemas are massive. And uh, ultimately, there's no foot traffic coming through the door. Yeah, those fixed costs just kind of eat away to you if you aren't getting that revenue through the door, right? And like you say, not just the size, but the locations of these chains. They're obviously in high foot traffic areas and big shopping malls and yeah. that sort of thing. And so it's really important that you have lots of people going through there. And if you aren't able to kind of manage that revenue, it actually makes more sense to kind of just shut down completely and just try and hibernate as long as you can to stay alive. But like we chatted about in the past, I think a lot of cinema chains are really going to struggle through this period. I really wonder what cinema chains of next year and the future are going to look like because we've almost set a precedent now that we're more than happy to sit at home and open up Netflix yeah. and watch TV and watch a movie by ourselves, right? Definitely. So that, that pull to the cinema is not quite the same as it used to be. When, in, in the old days, and I say the old days <laughs> tongue-in-cheek a little bit, but you'd have to go to the cinema to see that big blockbuster release, right? For the new James Bond film, if you wanted to see it, you had to go to the cinema and go and watch it. And there was a whole experience built around that yep. and slowly over time we've been moving more and more towards online streaming and towards kind of sitting at home with your popcorn and your big tv screen and enjoying the movie that way and so i don't know how cinemas are going to recover from this kind of thing beyond just the imax stuff which obviously you can go to cinema to go and see great surround sound and amazing sure. imax movies and whatnot <laughs> for anything that's not imax i don't know where the pull is going to be chad yeah, it is interesting. And I've had cinemas open in London. They, they have been open. Obviously, a lot of them have been playing some of the older releases, kind of re-releasing stuff. And, uh, I mean, one particular example that is really, I suppose, apt to talk about now is the release of David Attenborough's A Life on Our Planet, which I believe yes. is also on Netflix, I think, or, or one of the <laughs> streaming platforms. It but it's out in yeah. cinemas. And for me, I've I've got this now... I suppose, decision. I'm a little bit torn. Do I actually go into cinema to watch it and wear a mask the whole way through? What do I ease up onto the comfort of my couch and play my music as loud as I want and, and get gripped, I suppose, in, uh, in you know, that kind of fashion? It, it's a tough decision. It really is. And I'm not sure what it's like in the UK, Chad, but in South Africa, the movies have gotten more and more expensive every single year. Sure. And so by the time you've bought the movie <laughs> ticket, the popcorn, the slushy, all of that stuff, you're actually in for quite a quite a big investment compared to sitting on the couch and using your Netflix subscription. Yeah. And so like you say, it really is a big choice. And I think for some movie fanatics, they'll kind of cringe at this idea because they say like, no, the way movies are supposed to be enjoyed is in a big screen yeah. with lots of people around you and enjoying that group experience. But for someone like me, I, I don't think that way. I think that like the comfort and the the freedom and the the, the lower of cost of being able to sit at home and enjoying it with some friends and family that's that's quite powerful yeah. and so for me i'm a little bit skeptical so what's going to happen to cinemas going forward they're going to have to innovate in some way um some innovation we've chatted about in the past on this podcast is talking about subscription services maybe sure 
to pay like a monthly fee and get access to a certain number of movies in that month. They've got to find new ways of getting customers in that door. And if they don't, they're going to find themselves being less and less relevant over time. And the more big movies go straight to streaming and, and skips cinemas altogether, the more in trouble they're going to be. Absolutely. Well, let's actually talk about the prices, Barry. Let's just get into that because I find it quite interesting having been in South Africa and you know moved over about two and a half years ago. And you're completely right. The trajectory of movie prices has just been insane over the last couple of years. But I think you will be taken quite aback when you hear about the prices here in London uh, to go and watch a movie. So to go and watch a movie from the I don't know, experiential kind of research that I've done. Please don't uh, quote me on this. Um, but you would normally pay about £13 a ticket. So that's 260 rand or more wow. on just a standard seat. We're not talking about those wonderful, lazy boy, relaxing recliner chairs that you have there in, in South Africa. We've got those as well. Um, but that's just mm. for a stock standard movie ticket. Wow, I had no idea, Chad. <laughs> that, is, that is way crazier than I anticipated. Yeah, that is, that's like more than double what we have here. Okay. Um, that is that is not and the popcorn and, and drinks and stuff are they also overpriced? Yeah, way overpriced. Uh, it, it's actually insane. You normally pay, I think, last time I remember, you know, about ten pounds uh, for your uh, for your popcorn and, and slushy or, or whatever else it is that you're having, which which is a lot of money, like you say, for for one outing. Um, and you know, ultimately, you can get a similar type experience back at home. The one thing that I must be honest, and the one thing I have missed about South African cinemas, is your popcorn experience. So out here in the UK, you get your popcorn. Ultimately, there's two flavors. It's either sweet or salty or mixed. You can mix the two uh, if you'd like. Whereas in South Africa, depending on whether you're going to New Metro or Stokinico, you can either get a sachet of a wide variety of flavors. I even remember seeing chocolate, uh, you know, cheese, <laughs> onion and chives and all of salt and vinegar, all of this stuff. Or you can actually, probably not in COVID time, uh, you can probably actually just pick up your your shaker and go crazy with as much as you'd like. I really miss that, Barry. It's such a great part of it, and and I didn't realize that we were <laughs> unique in that because it's yeah. one of the best parts about South African movies, right? And it's been the cause of lots and lots of debates as to what is the perfect combination <laughs> of spice for your popcorn. I can't tell you the number of times you're chatting with your friends and they'll be like ardent <laughs> butter supporters or cream and chives or chocolate or whatever it is and everyone thinks they know the perfect combination yeah. and even when they start injecting Smarties Chad Ooh, or yeah. Astros yeah, yeah. or some other crunchy pieces in there you, there's a whole range of concoctions you can come up with Absolutely. and uh, it really is a, a great part of the movie experience I do really miss it I honestly do and if I can somehow get those spices here in London um, I'm going to do it. I'm going to actually look into it now because um, you make me feel like <laughs> my perfect combination, Barry, which is, like you say, a little bit of butter, a little bit of cheese and chives. I never went too heavy on the cheese by itself, the, the kind of orange, very orange spice. I was much more a fan of cheese and chives. Um, but yeah, that's my vibe. What about you? Chad, I must be honest, I'm much more of a classic vintage type person. Oh, right? no. Salt and vinegar, a little bit of butter, and we're good <laughs> to go. I don't go crazy because the popcorn needs to speak for itself. You don't just want to be eating like spice and popcorn. You want popcorn and spice. Fair enough. I mean, have you seen some of these gourmet <laughs> popcorn places that have opened? You've got these incredibly oh, expensive varieties of popcorn. I, I just can't believe it. There's a there's a pop-up shop in the middle of Santon City at the moment. <laughs> and I can't remember what their name is, but they sell this kind of popcorn. And it's like all gold. It looks like oh. it's golden plated. It's like very, very fancy containers and fancy. Th and you look at the prices, Chad, and you're like, holy 
moly. It's just popcorn. Who would pay for this? Yeah, it's crazy. It's absolutely nuts. What is going to be next? It's just crazy. Let's then move on, Barry, to our next segment. Stuff I found interesting. Alrighty, stuff I found interesting. Now, Barry, you've chucked a few things at this list that I'm keen to dig into them. Uh, the first one is something that you mentioned actually at the bottom of one of your newsletters, and I found it quite an interesting hook. So I'm keen to hear your description of it. Definitely. I think I think it's really interesting, and it kind of talks to the Bill Gates conversation we've had in the past, talking about philanthropy and talking about if you're one of these wealthy, wealthy, ultra-rich people and you want your money to do as much good as possible, there's various strategies you can go with, right? So you can choose to start your own foundation and do lots of in-person work and really be hands-on with the way your money gets given away. You can choose to just give it away to effective causes in big donations, either when you die or during your life. Or you can wait until your, your children or your foundation inherits it when you once you finally leave this earth. Yeah. And so there's lots of different strategies talking about how best to use this money. And this is an example that I found by a guy called Chuck Feeney, who I didn't know the name of, but he is the founder of Duty Free. So okay. for anyone who's ever done any international travel and you know those huge duty-free stores where you buy your whiskey and your cigars and your cigarettes and your Toblerone <laughs> and all that good stuff, he is the person who came up with that whole concept and kind of put them in airports all around the world. And so I found that strange because in my mind it felt like it was an airport-run thing, but it's clearly not. It's, it's actually like a company that's been built, okay. and Chuck Feeney is the guy who did it. So he's this ginormous billionaire. He's now, I think, 89 years old. And what's been really special about him is that about 20 or 30 years ago, him and Warren Buffett, they're good friends. And as ultra-rich, they have to be friends. That's just how it <laughs> works, right? And so he had a chat with Warren Buffett, and they, 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 they decided together they were going to take this pledge called the Giving Pledge. And basically what the Giving Pledge was is trying to give away 95-plus percent of your wealth over your lifetime with the idea that that money can do really, really good for the world and can really, like, really push various causes forward. And so Chuck did this. And what he's actually done, Chad, which is really, really cool to see, is that it's not just lip service. Okay. There was an article last week that came out that said he's finally gone bankrupt. Oh, my gosh. The billionaire has finally gone bankrupt from giving away all of his money. So he's kind of lived up to this 89-year-old person. He's now given away over $8 billion to charitable what? causes around the world. And he's now out of money. And I think that's such a special story because a lot of it, sometimes you're a bit skeptical. You're like, oh, I'm going to give the way, I'll give, give the money away later. Don't worry. Just trust me. <laughs> It's hard to know, like, are they actually going to follow through with it? Because it's very easy to talk about this stuff. It's much more difficult to actually take out the checkbook and give it away. And he's one of those guys who's really kind of lived up to his promise and given away $8 billion to the point that now him, is, him and his wife are living off basically nothing. Oh, my gosh. It's such a crazy story. And I suppose if you, if you are ever in that fortunate position to have that kind of problem barrier of deciding how you're going to give it away which i hope we will be in one day um i don't think i'm going to adopt that approach i think personally the the approach of a kind of 10 percent while you're still living is a good one um and then you know if you do want to donate anything in your will um, i think that's the sensible thing to do because you know his quality of life now for the rest of of how long his life is going to be is going to be compromised although i'm not sure is he still involved in this business does he still have some dividends coming is it still kind of some sort of tap uh, that is flowing some resources his way or or did he really have 
that one pot that he's now exhausted. So I'm not actually sure what his lifestyle looks like right now. I'm sure he's not in poverty. I'm sure he's doing just fine. <laughs> I, I don't think he's like gone bankrupt okay. to the point of absolutely nothing. But I think in one of the interviews that I read about him, he was saying that he wanted to see the good that his money would do. Yep. He wanted to live long enough to be able to see what he could do with his money. Right. And I get that. Like for, for when it comes to fulfillment, when it comes to like that, that closing that circle in your life, yep. you want to be able to see what all that hard work and all that success was able to do for the world. Yep. And so I get it. There's obviously the debate about compound interest, right? So when you're giving it away throughout your life, there's an argument to be made that maybe you should continue to invest it and continue to build and build and build and give it away right at the end. So I, I understand that argument. Yep. But psychologically, that, 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 that joy of being able to see what your money actually does in the world, that must be indescribable. Absolutely. And that makes complete sense why you would uh, choose that approach. Um, I just hope, because obviously as our life expectancies are, are growing longer and longer by the year, Hopefully he does have just enough to keep himself going at a <laughs> kind of reasonable level um, because that would be quite sad if, we, if we're honest with ourselves. Um, but yeah, amazing, amazing thing that he's done by donating so much money. That's just staggering, staggering amounts. I'm sure, I'm sure you could call up Warren and ask for some pocket money <laughs> if he needed. I'm sure that's not a problem. That's true. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Good to be in those kinds of circles, hey? Um, so let's move on then to the next one, Barry. Talk us through it. Yeah, so this one is a little bit difficult to describe because it's a video you actually need to go and watch. Okay. So we'll leave the link in the description and all that. But basically what this is, is that someone went and found a very, very old, grainy black and white video from a 1896 okay. and it's this little video of a snowball fight in Lyon in France right so just a, a random video on the side of the road people throwing snowballs at each okay. other and it's in this like very very early camera technology and so what these guys have done is they've taken this video and they've used the latest in AI the latest in camera technology the latest in editing technology to actually make it colorize and bring okay. it into the 21st century. So they've turned this ancient, ancient video into something that's very watchable in 2020. So it, by watching it, it's really an amazing kind of time capsule of what life used to be like in 1896. And so you're able to look back in time and look at like what a snowball fight looks like <laughs> in France. It's such a fascinating idea. That is such a cool idea, especially when we spoke uh, you know, a few weeks ago about the iPad release when you can zoom in and zoom in and add extra frames and add extra detail and do all that kind of <laughs> enhance, stuff. Enhance, enhance. To do that <laughs> in video um, is, is staggering and then go another level and add color as well um, and I guess remove the grain, all of that kind of stuff. Um, really is insane and if you, if you take it a step further when we actually get this kind of scale with this AI technology that I think we'll get to eventually, uh, the question of investing in high quality camera equipment at source it's going to be an interesting one to to kind of watch how the debate unfolds because I'm pretty sure when we get to that kind of large scale, uh, you might be able to have a membership to some sort of AI uh, kind of service or software that will be able to upscale your footage uh, for a relatively low cost. And so you might be able to take your iPhone footage to a, a much higher level. Yeah, it's such a good point. And, and it's a debate that's going to rage on for years and years between the camera purists who believe everything should be done in camera yep. <laughs> versus those in the post-production who can do all sorts of magic and make it look like nothing like what it looked yep. like in camera. And so it's a great example of like what technology can do just because it's pixels, right? At the end of the day, any video is just a piece of information. It's just zeros and ones and information. And you can do lots and lots of cool stuff with it if you know what you're doing. Yep. And so what these guys were able to do by inserting extra frames and removing grain and adding color, making it smoother and all this stuff makes this video that shouldn't actually exist, right? It was way before this fancy video technology. And so it's really cool to see what potential there is. And like you say, it's the right thing to think about what comes next 
takes from this. And you're not going to need the greatest camera in the world going forward. Like a lot of the a lot of the innovation, a lot of the the, the, the progress in photography and in videography is in computational stuff, right? In like what can you do with the software piece of it? The camera is just going to be an input device to get that information into a, a, some sort of source. And then all the computation and all the processing on top of that is going to make that footage whatever you want it to be. Yeah. And so that's where the innovation is going to come from in the future. And that's why I think we're going to start seeing, instead of uh, smartphones adding a new camera every single year, they're going to start thinking about what does the software need to do and how does that post-production actually going to impact what we see at the end of the day. Absolutely. And that post-production and this kind of debate is a key one. Uh, two kind of topics that I want to talk about on the back of this, Barry. Uh, the first one is Sony smartphones. Now, I don't know if you've been following what's happening in the Sony world, uh, but they released their uh, Sony Xperia 5 II um, a little while back. I, I don't know how long ago, a couple of weeks ago, let's say. Um, and basically these devices, which nobody's been talking about at all, funny enough. Um, essentially, we've got <laughs> Sony, who's a manufacturer of incredibly high-end cameras. We spoke about their cameras the other day. Um, and they're basically rolling out some of this tech into their smartphones. Now, obviously, they're limited by the sensor. It's got a 12-megapixel camera, and uh, they've got three cameras, I think, the, the usual combination of telephoto, wide-angle, etc. But what this camera essentially lets you do is dial into full automatic mode in camera, and even the UI, everything like that, it feels like you basically have one of the Sony cameras on your phone. Uh, they've been able to strap a 4K screen onto this device, and uh, essentially the question of why no one is talking about these cameras, I had a Sony phone a while ago, the Sony Satio, which was one of my favorite phones ever. I loved it. Um, and it also had a camera that was amazing. You could actually kind of slide off to open the lens and you had a dedicated camera button. I just have such fond memories of it. Um, but you're completely right. I suppose this is the way that we're going, where you're able to dial in a bit more on the software and you you take advantage of the kind of AI autofocus features and, uh, you know, be able to do a heck of a lot more on the phone. And it really, really is sparking this kind of debate. That's fascinating. And, and yeah, I haven't been following this conversation and maybe that's a sign that that's no one, that's why no one's talking about yep. it, right? Some, for some reason, it hasn't kind of caught the cultural zeitgeist. Do you think it's because of the phone itself, Chad? Like, is the phone a really good phone, like putting the camera aside for a second? I mean, I think I think it is a very good Android phone, right? I think if you're on the Android system, it's comparable to the likes of Samsung and, uh, you know, LG, whatever else is, is kind of the, the play of the month in the Android world. I know that changes even the yeah. Google, the Google Pixels. Uh, I think they've also released mm -hmm. their, their latest one not too long ago. Um, so, yes, I think it's, it's pretty much a really good uh, Android phone. It's got some other nifty little features like that fingerprint recognition on the on button. It drops the notch. Like I said, it's got a... 4K screen, uh, which has a high refresh rate as well. Um, you know, so it's got really, really good specs and some some cool features. And I, I don't know why it hasn't caught that cultural wave. Um, I think everyone is gung ho Apple at the moment, myself and you included as well, uh, and all of the integrations, I guess, too, which is kind of making Android harder sell. But you know, Android certainly has its place. Um, and I'm not completely sure myself, uh, not being an Android user, why that is. Yeah, that is, it is strange. I think that Sony have this have a really good brand, right? They're really, really well regarded, and they've got made some really, really cool stuff. So it is a bit strange. Maybe the marketing plan wasn't quite on points. Maybe they were caught up in the Trump news cycle or something. There's always a bunch of reasons for these things. Um, but at the end of the day, I think that with products like this, the good will rise to the top, right? 
with enough time, if these things are as good as some people say they are, then they should rise to the top. I th- hopefully that's the idea. That's, that's how this should work, yeah. right? Is that the best products should rise. True. And we have to watch the space and see what happens um, from here. Absolutely. One more thing I want to chat about, Chad, was the idea, what this means for history. So if you think about it, when you're back in school and you're doing history, you're, you're studying from these old grainy photographs. You're looking at these yep. some terrible videos. I don't know if you ever did like <laughs> no. where you put the, the big TV screen in the in the middle of the class and we all watch this like World War II <laughs> documentary. They're all in like very, very grainy and, and difficult to, to really buy into it at the, at the end of the day. Um, if they're able to do this sort of thing and make this footage more tangible and more colorized and more engaging for people the idea is that hopefully more people will be interested in history because all of a sudden you can open up all of this footage to a world that is very used to 4k on their netflix accounts kind of thing yep Um, and so i think that's quite exciting if that's what they're able to do because history um for a long time has very much been through the eyes of whoever's telling it to you so it's very much through text it's very much through historians talking about how things have happened if you're able to take some of this footage and, and not all of it but some of it and turn it into real 21st century quality footage i wonder what it might do for us learning about what happened in our past yeah absolutely it's a good point and uh, i am guilty of that i am i'm so not keen to to kind of dig into the old school (laughs) style of history and if you could modernize it somehow you'd definitely get my buy-in one good example of that is the crown series which barry by the way there's a new season coming mid-november and i am frothing no way I cannot wait. Yes. Uh, it's, we're basically now going into the era of uh, Princess Diana. Um, and so far, the little snippets that I've seen look really, really good. So if that's if that's an example, then uh, that certainly, certainly is uh, a good way to do it. Because I have been just fascinated at the stories of, uh, of the royal family and I guess all of the various uh, experiences that they've been through and all of the kind of scandals that have been out or, or you know, possibly have been out suggestions all those kinds of things um and if somebody had kind of strapped on a historian type uh you know composition and was sitting down just telling me well if back in the day this is what happened and (laughs) you know there was a suggestion that uh, this happened i wouldn't have been so keen on it but um strap You're right. That's exactly it. That's me. That's me watching that kind of thing. Um, but strap it into the cinematic Netflix production that is The Crown, and you've got my buy-in 100%. Definitely. And so I think there's some exciting potential for this sort of thing if we're able to bring some of that technology and some of that history back to life in a way. I know there's th- one thing I want to shout out is that there's an amazing series on Netflix. I think it's called World War II in Color. Okay. And they've done a similar thing. So they've taken, obviously, the footage from World War II is much better than, say, this 1896 footage. Yep. But what they've been able to do is they've they've added color, they've remastered it, and they've added a soundtrack of popular music to it. And it's made it really, really engaging. So it's a crazy long series of documentaries. It's like seven episodes of like two hours each, something crazy. But it's it's an example of what is possible when you take some of these these new 21st century ideas and, and ways of production and apply it to history in a very engaging way. And uh, for hopefully for our kids and for our generation going forward, they'll look back on history and it'll be way more engaging than what we went through, Chad. Yeah, absolutely. I absolutely hope so. Uh, because you, you do want to kind of learn a few of these things, but it does you just do need to get that interest, I suppose. You need that curiosity to let anything actually stick. Um, and to be able to watch it in, in good quality uh, definitely helps with that. Final, final thread to wrap this topic up on my side, Barry. Uh, when we talk about this post-production versus shot-in-camera 
style of stuff. I saw a tweet by a guy we spoke about a few weeks ago, Casey Neistat, arguably the, the godfather of YouTube. And uh, I found out last night I was with someone who, who didn't know who he was. And it was quite a funny, uh, funny discussion point. So if you don't know anything about him, do go and check him, him out. Uh, ultimately, just to, to see why he's got that title. And it's definitely a deserving one. Uh, but he put out a tweet, Barry, um, essentially talking about some advice that he gave a, a young filmmaker. Um, and, and I'm just going to read his message, which is general ideology. I don't like filters, color correction, transitions, digital effects, fancy font treatments or titles. I think they're cheap and easy. Anyone can download and plug in. They're not a demonstration of creativity, but something pre-packaged and emblematic of a more formal, mainstream-like aesthetic that a lot of younger creators see as aspirational. Aspirational because using easy plugins makes their homemade videos look like what is seen on TV. Use nothing but straight cuts and footage out of the camera. Text is almost always Helvetica, not because I like the look, but just because it's default. Expressing creativity using the most basic accessible methods is the hardest thing to do and the purest. The very best steakhouses serve their fillets on a plate with nothing else. Shitty franchises cover theirs and sauce and other shit to distract you from the fact that you're <laughs> eating dog food. And I thought it was quite a funny tweet, Barry. Obviously highly controversial. Um, just this <laughs> debate that is really uh, such an important one versus post-production or in-camera. It's so, it's so important though, Chai, because so many of us get caught up in that trap of worrying about the tools and the equipment all day long. Yeah. And at the end of the day, like we chatted about before, storytelling it must come first. It has to come yeah. first. And obviously there's space for really good production. Obviously we want our stuff to sound as crisp as possible. We want it to look as good as possible. And we're going to put effort into post-production for those reasons. Yeah. But if you do that, instead of a good story, you're never going to make a bad story work. Right. Whereas if you have a good story and it's shot on a flip phone, it'll still be great. Exactly. And so it's one of those things we have to keep reminding ourselves of because it's so easy to get caught up in those things. We'll, we'll go and buy someone else's presets, right? We'll spend money yep. on a, a unique look that might make our stuff look exactly like theirs without actually worrying about the story. And that's the, that's the mistake. Yep. So you have to have both. You really have to have both. And so often the story is what we throw away because it's harder to do. It's much easier to get the tech right. Absolutely. And I'm completely guilty of that and it's something that I've been trying to focus on lately um, to just try and focus on the story and try and actually make it more engaging make the content um, yeah make it more engaging ultimately uh, because you, you're right it could look good but ultimately without any kind of backbone to this, the footage or to the story uh, ultimately you know you're just watching good looking stuff um so yeah completely right and I, I think it's something that we all need to remember when we kind of go back on our creations all right so let's wrap that up barry let's move on then to the next thing that i found quite interesting this week um there we are there we are um, i'm i'm i must be honest i haven't watched all of the movies and i know barry yeah, chad i know <sighs> chad <laughs> Chad, <laughs> dear listeners, I, I, I apologize for Chad's lack of culture. We will write this ship. I promise you, please stick with us. We will rebuild. Across the pond, we will rebuild. <laughs> We've had a few of these moments. We've had a few of these moments. <laughs> Firstly, with Star Wars. Secondly, with Lord of the Rings. Now with Harry oh. Potter. That's what we're talking about, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I mean, I've watched, I've watched a, a majority of the series, but, but not all. But not all. Um, Yes, we will write the ship. We will get there eventually. Um, 
Do you, do, do you realize you're talking to a huge Harry Potter fan? <laughs> like a fan that went to Harry Potter World when he was in London and had the time of his life? Do you realize that? <laughs> really? Okay, amazing. Um, <laughs> I, I, I haven't been myself yet. And uh, I actually went past the Harry Potter theater yesterday because it's a theater production, which is incredibly, incredibly yes. popular. It's two acts. People wait years to get in there. And I was thinking, you know, what about all those people who had bought tickets, who were waiting, and you've just got this franchise that the doors are just closed. It's such a sad thing to watch. Um, but I'm sure you would have loved to go to that too. Chad, I went to it actually. I went ah. to in San Francisco. I went to this, the San Francisco version okay. uh, with my good friend Danny. So I saw both parts. I was thoroughly engrossed for nice. two whole days, two whole evenings. I had the time of my life. I was like a little kid again. It was great. Amazing. Okay, really cool. Um, okay, so Barry, the thing that I came across this past week that I found quite interesting was when you actually look at the franchise and you actually look at some of the, the characters and ultimately ask yourself the question of, Draco Malfoy, the antagonist of the series. Um, essentially, when you when you look at him, right, and we, this so people have so many strong feelings towards this guy. Yeah, you know, Slytherin represents all things evil, at least from what I've seen. Uh, Barry, when you ask yourself how much screen time he's actually had throughout the whole series, what kind of number would you instinctively give? Oh, so if we're thinking about, there were eight movies, right? And each movie was probably at least two hours, I'd say. So let's say 16 hours or so of total time. <laughs> Draco Malfoy is one of the biggest characters, I would, I would say. So on screen time, hmm, I'd say a couple hours at least, maybe four or five of the 16. That's interesting. And I, I like the educated guess there, Perry. I'm going to completely, <laughs> completely whip you down. And I'm going to say his screen time was actually 31 minutes and 30 seconds. No. No, man. <laughs> For the whole franchise? For the whole franchise. So I found that sure. absolutely fascinating. And I guess it's just important about how you can build up a character, how J.K. Rowling can build up a character and build perspectives to that character um, and really make it a featuring character in the whole series. But in terms of actual screen time, 31 minutes uh, they've obviously done a heck of a lot of, of message telling in that time yeah definitely that's really interesting because i think what makes jk rowling so incredible in my mind is the amount of depth and nuance she gets into each of her characters and draco malfoy is a great example it's this it's this like very easy antagonist like this this kind of enemy of harry potter throughout the series but as you go on you get to learn more and more that he's in these shoes he doesn't want to be in okay. and the reason that he's become this person is because of his family background because of his connection with Voldemort and all that good stuff and so there's so much depth in his character he's one of my favorites of all the all the characters in the whole sh in the whole series so to hear there's only 31 minutes of screen time <laughs> is crazy to me yeah it's like how do you manage to get that much character development out of so little screen time and I would guess that a lot of it comes through the discussions of Harry Ron and Hermione about yeah. Draco right so I'm, I'm imagining a lot of it comes from that yeah. and it's kind of it, it does make a little bit of sense to me because if you look at any anyone who writes in the horror genre or in kind of the hero versus villain genre they will talk about the fact that the less you show the villain the more scary he gets or the less like you show about him the more kind of mysterious and and and, and worried you are about this yep. villain and so maybe that's part of it maybe that like we are we're trying to cast draco as this evil character and so we're gonna give you as little as possible but over time i i certainly feel like definitely in the books and i'm assuming in the movies as well you start to realize that he's not as evil as you thought he was and that over time you get a sense that his parents are the ones who've kind of 
like put this on him yeah. and he's carrying this this huge thing on his shoulder. Um, and so that is really interesting that only has 31 minutes. Imagine <laughs> imagine living that life. Sorry, Chad, I'm getting very no, excited. That's fine. <laughs> imagine living that life of, of recording those movies for like years and years yep. and years and years. Like how many days was he just sitting in a caravan <laughs> waiting for his time on set? I mean, crazy. Yeah, I'm sure he's getting paid swimmingly for doing that. So oh, yeah. I bet you oh, he yeah. has no no complaints on that. Um, but but yeah, I mean, what what is <laughs> happening with any of the, the Harry Potter stars? I mean, I haven't really seen much of, of Hagrid uh, following the release or, or any of the, <laughs> the other kind of... Like Draco, what, what is he doing these days? Yeah, so his, I think his name is Tom Felton. I think his real name is Tom Felton. Okay. And he's actually been in a couple other series and movies since then. Obviously, never is going to be as successful as Harry Potter. Yep. It's a really, really tough thing <laughs> for your first kind of, your first thing to be the most successful movie franchise of all time. Yep. Right? It's really, really tough. Um, and I think that for all of those guys who grew up, I mean, when they started, they were like kids, Chad. Yep. They were 10, 11 years old when they started the first one. And so it's very hard to break out of those molds and, and become something bigger. Daniel, Daniel Radcliffe has had some time on Broadway. He was in a show called Icarus for a long time. Okay. He's had a couple other movies he's been involved in. So I think he's slowly starting to try and break that mold. But it's very hard to see him as anyone else than Harry Potter. It's yep. very, very yep. hard. Yep. Emma Watson, same thing, right? Obviously, has Hermione, a very, very iconic character. She's kind of broken out and she still does some film stuff. She was in The Beauty of the Beast, of course, and uh, a lot of like those kind of films. But a lot of her work nowadays is more on gender equality and more activist type yep. stuff. But if you talk about the secondary characters, the kind of guys that the, the smaller characters like Draco might be considered, it's very hard to see where they go from from, from where they are. Yep. Even with 30 min 31 minutes of screen time, when you think of Draco Malfoy, you see his face <laughs> and that's just how it is. Exactly. And so it's hard to now go and play a play a cop in a in a, in a comedy <laughs> series. It just doesn't happen, you know. That's so true, actually, and it's uh, it's it's a pity, really, um, because it does kind of, I suppose, limit uh, the future of, of someone's career. But I bet he's set himself up um, by doing that franchise in such a good way um, that you know it's not going to be much of a problem. Barry, obviously, while the series was re being released, we were we were kind of similar ages to to the actors, um, and I have to ask you. Uh, when the first Harry Potter came out, did you have that Emma Watson crush that all of the other boys around did? <laughs> Chad, I still have a crush on Emma Watson today. <laughs> um. that, 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 that series of books and that series of movies was was one of the most defining things of my childhood, right? Okay. And, I, and every single time a book came out, I was one of those idiots who were standing outside exclusive books at midnight to get okay. my copy the moment it came out. I remember when I was a kid, Chad, I used to get in trouble because I would go to bed, tell my mother I was going <laughs> to bed, and lie under the covers with a torch no reading my ways. Harry Potter. Wow. And I used to get, get in real trouble because I was supposed to be asleep. And so that's how much those books affected me. And Emma Watson, of course, when, when, the, when the movie started, <laughs> that was the childhood crush we all grew up yep. with. And she's just gotten more and more attractive every single year, yep. Chad. And so I still have that crush. <laughs> I still think she's amazing. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, I think she's cool. Well, <laughs> next time you're in London, do stop in and make sure you get your photo with her, Barry, at the Wax Museum, Madame Tussauds. Ooh. Um, I, oh, there's it was the very first thing that I did when I got here. Um, because, you know, if you can, <laughs> Priorities. why not? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All righty. Well, some other things that are happening in London, Barry, I wanted to quickly touch on. And the reason why I only had six hours of sleep last night is the London Cocktail Week, something I've never done before. But I was quite interested this time because obviously we've all been inside of our homes. And now to have any little excuse to go and explore new places uh, is, is great, is honestly great to have. And Cocktail Week has become Cocktail Month. So essentially what the whole model is here is you buy a wristband that lets you access mm -hmm. essentially fixed price cocktails at 
a suite of venues in and around London. And there are tons, honestly tons. Every single venue has their own exclusive cocktail that they are making, one or two, um, which you'll be able to find. And and ultimately, the cocktail prices are £6 uh, at each of these venues, which is very reasonable for, for London prices. It costs £15 for the bangle. And I've just really been enjoying this excuse to go and explore your city a little bit more. Obviously, this 10 p.m. curfew does not help at all. Um, <laughs> but I really, really thought it was interesting that they've kind of changed their model a little bit and extended this to a month-long thing um, just to try and get some more appetite going. I think it's such a cool idea. And it's a great example, like you say, of discovering parts of your city you never would have gone to before. Yep. So I'm sure there's bars and, and, and the cocktail lounges that you found that you never would have walked into normally. Definitely. But because they've got this special, you're like, let's give it a go. And I've seen some of the photos on Instagram. And it looks like you're going to lots and lots of different places and getting a sense of what else is out there yep. and give, like open up new venues that have this kind of undiscovered feeling to them. And that's what makes these kind of initiatives so great. Exactly. So have you found that you found some bars that are really, really cool that you never would have walked into? Previously? Absolutely, and some that are just down the road because there's so many places in London you could honestly live here for 50 years trying to get through every single place <laughs> because there's just so many places here. And you're completely right, I've discovered some new spots just even down the road from me. The thing that I've found really awesome. interesting, and I don't know if it's just because of the fact that I suppose you know a lot of people are, are weary at spending money and a lot of people still staying home a lot of the time. But I've found the, the kind of general friendliness of the staff working at these restaurants has been turned 180 degrees. Typically in London, go in and it's, it's, not, it's not a really friendly place, right? It's different to South Africa <laughs> in terms of just that small talk uh, in a restaurant setting. Yeah. And my experience for this cocktail week certainly is every single place we've been to has been incredibly welcoming, hospitable friendly uh small talk in london i'm i'm, I'm shocked and so <laughs> i hope that it's a bigger discussion of of a cultural change really where people start to be grateful for foot traffic and not just becoming accustomed to it because there's so many people in the city yeah again it, it's that it's that that scarcity that's driven this mindset i would yep. assume right the idea that usually we, we can just get away with anyone coming in because there's so many people going all all the time but the moment you have this kind of situation where all of a sudden foot traffic is way down yep. and you've got these people coming into your bar for the very first time you desperately want to convert them into regular customers exactly. right and so they want to make the best first impression they can to keep you chad going back to that same bar again and again and again over the next few years yep. and so again it's, it's a great example of how supply and demand can really change the way an interaction works and the way a transaction works yep. the moment there's lots and lots of people going in they don't have to be friendly because they can get away with it right yep. they can get away with just serving you what they need to do exactly turning the tables as quickly as they can and making their money that way the moment the demand do drops yep. and all of a sudden there isn't that kind of booming kind of consumer landscape all of a sudden you have to start competing in other ways and that's beyond your food and drink it goes to your service your friendliness etc exactly. so it's a good reminder for all of us as to how the market works but also if you're a restaurateur if you're a business owner even if you're just a human being <laughs> the more effort you put into being friendly and entertaining and kind of welcoming in all of these spaces you're going to win in the long term even though it takes energy it takes sometimes you don't feel like doing it you've had a bad day yep. you don't want to put that effort in it really does make a big difference and to the fact that you chat i'm guessing will be much more likely to go back to places where you really felt welcomed yep. versus a place that just served you your drink and left you to be 100 percent, and it's a, a key part of this experience that we've just been missing uh, since being in London, and I hope it's here to stay. I really do, um, because it, it just makes the 
experience more pleasurable and like you say if you're a human being we should want these things i don't know why when ultimately we don't have to work for something anymore we, we kind of lose that uh, just general nicety and uh, i think it's really really important so barry shall we move on to our next segment let's do it looking ahead all right so one thing to discuss here barry obviously you've keeping a nice beady eye there on the time uh we're doing pretty good so uh, let, let's check it out one thing to discuss mm-hmm. that is the name of a startup company <laughs> it kind of feels like an autocorrect chad <laughs> it does yeah and the philosophy of, of the founder is well you should be able to say the name while eating and uh, i mean it's such a random way of deciding on your company's <laughs> name but i really want to chat about it this week here because we've spoken about how video conferencing platforms have been evolving obviously as we've switched to working from home and doing a lot more remote communication and mm-hmm <laughs> is not a replacement <laughs> on essentially the tools that we're using at the moment like skype zoom uh, teams etc etc what it is is it's an add-on barry to ultimately give you a whole lot more in the way of functionality uh, presentability and ultimately make your calls a lot more seamless and professional. Uh, so I thought it was something we had to discuss today, and I just wanted to ask if you've watched the demo by any chance? I haven't, Chad, but I have read one or two articles about them. So okay. consider me a little bit in the <laughs> loop, but not much. <laughs> Alrighty. Well, basically, we've seen, obviously, all of these apps rolling out this virtual background, right? So no matter how much of a mess your apartment is in, you can... Rock into your video call and slap on a virtual background and, and look really good and presentable. This takes it to another level. So essentially, it makes your virtual background interactive. So firstly, you can have a virtual video background, which looks really cool. Ultimately, you can add a, a presentation screen up right next to you. So if you think about your, your weatherman who's presenting something behind you and there's a presentation actually reflected on that background, uh, this is kind of what this tool is going to be able to let you do. Um, on top of that, it lets you do a whole bunch of other cool things. So you can make yourself bigger or smaller uh, to ultimately make that presentation stand out more or less. You can actually move your head around. So if you're pointing at something, you can move your head around and you know make sure that it, it lines up to your presentation. Uh, so there's all of those really cool little tools. You can actually dim yourself uh, basically make yourself transparent um, depending on whether <laughs> you want people to be looking at the presentation at that moment in time you can zoom up and block it and then make yourself transparent to, to kind of draw more focus to what it is that you're presenting and ultimately it, it just shows that in the 21st century we really now are going to have to start thinking about the tools we're using when we are presenting and it's, it's becoming a lot more complex than just preparing a good presentation a good speech Ultimately, it's all of the, the extra bits and bobs that we need to think about. And I think this is really such a great tool. That's so interesting, Chad. I've been watching a couple of videos in the last few weeks talking about people who've been using like DSLR cameras yep. instead of their webcams to try and improve the quality of their Zoom calls or their Skype yep. calls, etc. And this is taking it one step further by going, even, by going even more crazy and introducing a whole bunch of new innovation to the whole video conferencing thing. I think it's safe to say that video calling is here to stay. I don't think yep. even when the pandemic dies down, we're still going to be on lots and lots of Zoom calls. I feel. And so this is a great example of what you can think about doing in the future to make things even more effective, right? To make your presentation stand out even that much more. 
And the first thought that I have is that there's so much opportunity here for some sort of app store type ecosystem where you can build some of these Definitely. components and add it to whatever platform you're using, whether it's Zoom or Skype or Teams or any of this yeah. stuff. So this sounds really, really interesting. A, a sense of like where video calling can go in the future. It's not just going to be about how good is your webcam, how good is your audio. That's going to kind of be the table stakes, the given. But what can you do with this technology to make that even more compelling? I've been in so many conferences and events over the last few months where it doesn't feel that compelling because it's just yeah. a talking head, right? Yep. It's just someone talking for an hour at a time. Yep. And it's very easy to kind of slump in your chair, pull out your phone, start <laughs> scrolling through your phone. Yep. And you're not actually engaged with what the person is saying, which is very different to what you would be in person. And if this technology is able to make things more compelling, to make things more interesting for the person on the other side of the call, then it, it turns a whole like ball game on its head. And you all of a sudden can do really, really creative things with these video conferencing services. And so this yep. is really interesting. I like this. Absolutely. I'm definitely, I've signed up. So hopefully when it, uh, they're in beta testing stages. Uh, so when they do decide to, to send me the product to download, I'm definitely going to be letting you know my full thoughts on it uh, because it, it really, it does look slick and I hope it actually works that way. Um, but it is, it's just that wider discussion of what we're going to be doing with our video conferencing tools in the future. And Barry, that point of upgrading your quality of uh, conferencing in terms of using a DSLR, all of that kind of stuff. Um, that's also really, really interesting. And that's something that we spoke about in that World 1.0, World 2.0 uh, discussion yes. a couple of months ago um, and I have actually subsequently bought a device you Barry are looking at a live feed from my camera at the moment uh, because I've got this device that uh, is basically called the Elgato CamLink 4k and ultimately you mm -hmm. can you can plug in a DSLR and you have essentially your great quality video coming through and I think something that is bringing this more and more into the mainstream because previously it's stuck in the world of streamers uh, it's bringing it more into the mainstream is when you watch a, a conferencing call of Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg, <laughs> those two yes. people, and you ultimately mm -hmm. are like, wow, my video conferencing calls never look like that. How do I get it <laughs> to look like that? Um, and, and it's important. And if you've ever watched one of those two people on any kind of Skype or Zoom call, ultimately they've got this wonderful camera set up. It looks buttery smooth. And that's how it should be. Definitely. It, it, it kind of feels like the suit of the previous years, right? Yeah. Previously, you'd spend your money on a really nice suit. So when you showed up to that interview or that meeting, you looked crisp and sharp, right? You looked your best. And that's how you would spend your money. And now it feels like instead of buying suits, we're sitting in our sweatpants on Zoom calls, <laughs> but we're going to make the actual footage look absolutely incredible. Yeah. And that's a, it's a really funny like look at where the world is going in the future. And I think it's, it's a really, really cool thing. I wonder, Chad the laptops that are going to come out in the next few years, like how good are their front-facing cameras going to be? And so if those cameras can get to a stage where they are really, really high quality, like iPhone-level quality, maybe you won't need all of these workarounds and all of these other things. Yeah. So I think it's going to change the way the laptops are built in the future. It's going to change the way that Definitely. Zoom thinks about how they do their thing. Of course, the other side of this coin is that if everyone is now shooting DLSL like footage and sending it over the internet, what does it do for latency and bandwidth and all that sort of thing, right? So the reliability of the calls starts come into question especially yep. in places like south africa where the internet is not always amazing and so it's it's a really interesting discussion for the future so what this is going to look like in a couple of years time because zoom calls are here to stay and so yep. how are we going to make them better how are we going to make them more interactive and how are we going to make those meetings feel as immersive as they can and yep. when is vr coming Chad? <laughs> <laughs> oh i hope it doesn't come because i don't need everyone looking at 
uh, the full 360 degrees of my room that I'm in, Barry. I mean, that that feels just crazy. Unless, unless we're talking about a scenario where we can virtually have a table of people and and people sitting at their various... I want to see you sitting right here, Chad. I want across the pond to be sitting having the conversation right here. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I'm, I'm sure we need to keep our eyes peeled for that. Um, but yeah, if we, if we did have a kind of day-long conference, my neck is going to be very <laughs> sore. True story. True story. We'll have, to, we'll have to hold our judgment on that just for the moment. Absolutely. Well, let's move on then to our last segment. Develop and grow. So, Barry, lockdown has not been kind to me. Yeah, Chad, it hasn't been kind to me either. I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm hiding my belly behind, uh, underneath the shot here to make sure it doesn't get in. Lockdown has been a lot of comfort food, yep. very little physical exercise, a lot of sitting on the couch, and we had a moment the other day, the two of us talking about, <laughs> we need to get ourselves in shape. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I was editing through some footage that I took in the Amalfi Coast, uh, basically teeing up my next YouTube video. And when I was looking through that footage, I, I just, I was on the beach, shirt was off, and I was like, what on earth is going on? <laughs> um, because it is, it is one of those things where when you look at yourself in the mirror from that front-on perspective, somehow it doesn't look as bad. Until you look at a photo somebody else has taken of you, or you look at, you know, a mirror um, at, at a different angle, and then you're kind of like, actually... Maybe I need to maybe I need to work on myself a little bit. And so <laughs> Barry and I have been trying to rack our brains of, of ways to essentially get rid of all of this unwanted fat that is has just basically piled on as a result of, of lockdown and not walking as much, not being active, um, not being in a fitness type routine. Uh, and, and of course, obviously, the temptation and the boredom, I suppose, of eating. Yep. Good tasting stuff that that hits us with <laughs> a bit of dopamine. Um, so anyway, I just wanted to talk about uh, Matt Diavella, the uh, YouTuber who we've, we've spoken about a few times before, um, who ultimately is your self improvement, uh, you know, productivity guru. Ultimately on on YouTube, he's the guy you need to go and watch, and he's actually done a documentary uh, on Netflix, which, which I still haven't watched on minimalism. Need to go and check that out. Um, but ultimately, the one rule of his that has stuck with me and has, has really just, it's always resonated quite well, is this two-day rule. So what this phenomenon is, Barry, is you can ultimately skip a day of physical activity. You can skip one, but you can't skip two. And I find that so effective, Barry. For some reason, being able to kind of take that rest day at least you know, once every day, if you'd like. Ultimately, when you look at the seven days in a week, you're still going to be exercising enough. Um, and so I find it such an effective way of doing things where you allow yourself one day of rest, but not two. It's, it's, such, it's such a great like little mnemonic to keep in your brain. And it's very yep. easy to think about and remember. And it's very easy to stick, well, not easy to stick to, let's say, but very simple. <laughs> and uh, the reason it works is because it, it talks to that consistency. Yep. We all have those moments where we're like, okay, we're going to get our stuff together, Chad. We, we, we diet really well for like two weeks. We do really, really well. And we have one bad day. And all of a sudden, we're like, oh, stuff this. We had one bad day, therefore, I'm just going to throw the rest of the week, throw the rest of the month away. And we go down this very, very slippery slope. And before you know it, we've ruined all of that progress, right? Yep. What this rule really does well is that when you have that one bad day, it's okay. Like, you can be kind to yourself. You don't have to beat yourself up. You're like, okay, cool. I had a bad day. I had a day where I wasn't on or where I ate 18 chocolate chip cookies or whatever <laughs> I did. 
All I have to do is make sure I don't have two bad days in a row. Yep. And that's a very achievable goal compared to thinking that, oh, I've done 10 perfect days and then one day off and then, oh, now I've ruined my streak yep. and now it's completely dead, right? Definitely. And so it's a, it's a great little piece of psychology to use against yourself, um, especially if you're this kind of person like we are, that it really does help us just to kind of keep on the right track. And like yep. you say, we don't have to be working out two and a half hours a day for seven days a week to get exactly. results, right? We don't have to do that and we don't have the time to do that. Yep. Whereas this kind rule just reminds you that consistency over a long enough period without too many kind of long breaks in between that's how you get your results yeah. and so yeah it's, it's something i need to think about chad it's something i need to implement in the next little bit to make sure i get back on track and it's one of those very very achievable type things which is much much more realistic than a crash diet or like a 21 day boxing challenge or whatever yeah. the story is Absolutely. And if you are like us and you have also picked up one or two extra kgs during lockdown, <laughs> join us. Join us on this uh, on this journey, ultimately, of getting ourselves back to our best, uh, whatever that may be. And uh, ultimately, you know, as realistic as that actually is. Um, but but let's do it. Let's, let's try and try and get feeling better and, and try and implement this rule in, in getting there, which is neutral to the type of exercise you're doing. You don't have to be doing HIIT workouts. You don't have to be running. You don't have to be uh, standing on a cricket field and, and running around <laughs> like Barry loves doing. Just whatever it is that you're doing, do it consistently over time. Um, and uh, yeah, that'll get us closer to our goal, which I love. Barry, that brings us to an end of another jam-packed episode. And uh, you know we've ended this one up in, in pretty good time. Damn straight, damn straight. I've really enjoyed this one. It's been really, really yep. good to chat. You've certainly opened up over the hour, so it's good to see <laughs> you back after your, your lack of sleep last night. Yes. Um, and for anyone listening, we really appreciate you guys. It's awesome being able to do this every single week. It's one of the highlights of my week, yep. and it's really good to do this. Absolutely. Well, I wanted to close this one off with a challenge to our listeners, actually. A little Ooh. challenge. Can you step up to this challenge? I wanted to ask if you can think of just one friend who would enjoy listening to the podcast and maybe send us their way. Just one. Give it a little thought, a couple of minutes, and uh, we'll be super, super grateful if you do. Chad, that's a great challenge. So please send a WhatsApp, a Skype, a TikTok, a Facebook, <laughs> an Instagram, whatever it is, to a friend that you think really would enjoy this. Uh, yeah. We really appreciate it. We love to get in front of more people. We're seeing some good news on the YouTube side. So things are growing. But of course, we really would love to grow this audience and this family we're building yeah. here at Across the Pond. But for now, that's all from us. We'll see you back here again next week, same time, same place, on another episode of Across the Pond. Oh. Across the